Welcome to What's Working in Washington on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Hi, I'm Jonathan Aberman. Coming up on today's show. So what are, we, what are we hearing from the military leaders? Are the big issues the same things that have been the big issues? Cybersecurity, robotics, fighting, let's just say. Use, use that term. I don't even know how to define authenticity. I think it's a kind of a catch-all word. But everything that we put in place is there for a reason. It's not there because we think we should. It's not there because we, uh, we did market research. We built a restaurant that we wanted to go to. Our unfair advantage is being in D.C. It's having worked at three previous startups here. It's having inside track on great talent here. There, there's less competition, but also relationships that exist with us. This week's show is another demonstration of the rich tapestry of the greater Washington region's business community. Marcus Weisgerber is global business editor at Defense One. He's been watching the development of the national security industry after the Trump administration, and there may be a big difference between the public statements and how the industry is actually being affected by what's going on here in D.C. Thor Cheston is founder of Right Proper Brewing Company. This is a man who decided that he wanted to help build D.C. by starting businesses in neighborhoods and parts of D.C. where there's opportunities to bring people together around food and beer. Kevin Bennett is co-founder of Home Zen. He has done three startups successfully in this region. He's now on his fourth. He'll explain why the D.C. region is the place where he chooses to grow his new startup businesses. That's what's in store for you in this week's episode of our show. Many observe that the national security industry drives a significant portion of the greater Washington region's economy. What's the true condition of what's really going on in the industry? We have an insider's perspective. Marcus Weisgerber is global business editor at Defense One. He spends his day trying to unpack what's actually going on in this most important industry. Marcus, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, there's been a lot of discussion, a lot of rhetoric. I would say a lot of arm-waving about the floodgates are open, defense spending is going to be coming out of the, like crazy. What's actually happening on the ground right well, now? Well, we, ha- we haven't seen that quite yet. It seems to be the thing that all the CEOs of all the major companies keep talking about since Trump's election back in November. Um, now we're, we're three months or so into the administration. The companies just this week, the big defense firms, the Lockheeds and Boeings and Raytheons of the world, all are reporting their earnings this week. And you know, surprised that they're they're kind of along the lines of what they've been. You know, some some gain, some have some gains, some have some losses. But overall, it's a lot of the same. We're hearing the exact same stuff that we heard all throughout the Obama administration. We're hearing about the Budget Control Act and budget caps. We're hearing about potential for sequestration happening, and we're hearing about stuff like shutdowns again. So really, the conversation hasn't really changed all that much. So as you go off and you talk with people in industry. Are they, are they scratching their heads and saying, geez, I thought this was going to be a great time for me? Or are they just sort of shrugging their shoulders and saying, eh, you know, doesn't matter who the White House is. We've got our work. We've got our clients. And we just we just stick out, stick with it. Well, right now, yeah, the stick with it, stick with it is the theme. But there, there still is this expectation for growth, that there, there will be some growth. Because remember, we've, we've had, th- even throughout the, the budget caps that have existed for the federal government, there have been deals o- over, the, over the years to actually raise them m- modest, modestly. There is still optimism that these caps are going to get lifted and that that more money will flow into defense. 
But you're not hearing right now what you were hearing kind of when Trump was elected, that you, you were going to have kind of the spigot open, open wide and just money free flowing, free flowing in again, that the, the, the growth is just it, it'll be there, but it'll be a lot more modest. And that's going to have implications for people who are hiring up or getting ready for demand. You know, another thing that we've seen in the first couple of months of this administration, and we've talked about this in other other programs or other shows in our series, the whole Twitter phenomenon, you know, the, mm -hmm. the president tweeting out about things. And certainly one of his subject matters has been saving money in national security. You know, it's Air Force One, the F-35. Has that had any effect on behavior in the government contractor uh, so, business community? You know, I, I get asked this question all the time. I'm sorry to ask it again. No, it's it's a great question. I fall in a rut because, because it's so tough. A lot of people will will, will will point to that F30 that they have 35 contract and say, "Hey, Trump's claiming that he saved all all this money, but but did did he really? The price of it was going down anyway." Well, here's here there there has been a Trump impact to, to this. The Pentagon kind of they forced. Lockheed to accept a contract. They said, hey, we're going to give you a contract for F-35s, take it or leave it. And Lockheed maintained for months that they might they might sue the government. And then it, as recently as, um, I want to say, uh, January, January-ish, right around the time when they were reporting their year, their year earnings, their, their CFO st left the door open for them to, to take legal action. And then they had spokesmen who were releasing statements saying, yeah, well, we can protest this essentially until until the um, contract is done, which is years from now. So kind of, it's in limbo. Well, guess what? Marilyn Houston, the CEO, was on the earnings call uh, just recently in, in, in recent days, and she said, we're not gonna touch it. So we're gonna let it, we're gonna let it be. So you know what? She's on Trump's ma manufacturing board. She's had a lot of interaction with Trump. She might've been started in the doghouse, as did Boeing with Dennis Mullenberg, their CEO, when, when they, Boeing got, he was victim of his, his tweets, and guess what? He's regularly talking to Trump now, and pe people at Boeing tell me that they do routinely talk on the phone, and they have met in person numerous times, and Trump's first visit to a manufacturing facility was indeed Boeing in South Carolina. It is a, a different type of presidency, to be sure. It's, it clearly is having an effect on behavior in many industries, uh, including national security. Let's turn our attention now to the smaller business, the entrepreneurs. The Obama administration, I think it's fair to say, had a... They had a real love affair with Silicon Valley in particular and the innovation model in Silicon Valley, maybe to the detriment of uh, small businesses and entrepreneurs here in the D.C. region. What's your early indications as to whether the Trump administration is going to have a similar viewpoint with respect to where they're going to find non-traditional innovation, people that uh, uh, aren't currently working in the government security industry? Well, I'm looking at Secretary Mattis. Uh, he he was in Silicon Valley himself. Uh, so far, we keep hearing a lot of the same themes, the, 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 this, the agileness of small business in Silicon Valley. The, the Pentagon likes that. You're hearing a lot about their, their Silicon Valley office, this DIUX office that the Pentagon uh, set up out in, uh, right next to Moffitt Field out in uh, San Jose. So they're still talking the talk about Silicon Valley and even we're, we're seeing we're seeing DIUX awarding contracts still the Trump administration uh, still does not have while Mattis is there there are still a lot of positions in the Pentagon that aren't filled and people who will influence this so it's going to take probably a few months if not a year or so to actually figure out okay is this whole push to Silicon Valley going to continue they're certainly not going to keep calling it the, the you know the third offset which we hear about a lot which is uh deputy defense secretary uh, bob works uh 
plan, if you will, for coming up with the technologies and weapons of the future that will uh, give the U.S. advantage over p countries like Russia and China. So it seems fair to say, then, what you're seeing on the ground is that the the names may change, but the opportunities remain. So far, that seems to be what it is. As you look out into the next 6 to 12 months, if you were to advise a business leader or an entrepreneur here in town, what would be your best advice for how they should be looking to read the tea leaves? What would be good uh, indications of the the the, the trends what should they be looking for so this the, the, got to listen to what number one is always to listen to what the military leaders want because that's that has nothing to do with the politics and, and and who's in office so what are we what are we hearing from the military leaders are the big issues the same things that have been the big issues cyber security r robotics fighting let's just say use, use that term uh being able to fight in the environments that are highly uh filled with surface-to-air missiles and lots and lots and lots of threats, being able to jam stuff. Uh, so electronic warfare has been something. So you know, so far, despite new, new administration, uh, all those uh, priorities are all still very, much, still very much there for the soldiers and sailors, airmen, and Marines who are out there. So you cover this beat. It's big. It's in some ways predictable. What's the well, what's the thing that happened that you saw in the last month that just you scratched your head and thought, wow, I never thought I was going to see that. It, it's it's a little bit in the weeds, but uh, some of the um, some of the companies that are as they're reporting earnings in in, in recent weeks, they, they have taken some charges, if you will. So basically, they've they've busted budgets on uh, projects. Lockheed had one with a contract, a missile defense contract. They're working for the Middle East. Um, it, it kind of was a big head scratcher because no one seemed to know this program even existed until it was brought up on on an earnings earnings call. You Google you Google it, and there is a, a website or two that might come up or reference this. But the it took us a while to actually figure out what the acronym they referenced on the earnings call actually actually meant. And we found a story from um, one of the local newspapers in uh, Abu Dhabi that that wrote about it. Um, so that was kind of a surprise that. You know, Bo Boeing's still not out of the woods on this air refueling tanker they're they're building for the Air Force. Um, you know, they 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 reference some other some some more um, budgetary issues with it, l less technical issues which have been in the past. And they you know maintain again that that's all behind them, but they maintain that that's all behind them. Seemingly on every every time somebody comes out to speak and address the prior problem they had. Well, you can keep saying something's behind, and sooner or later it will be if we live long enough. <laughs> Marcus Weisgerber, it's great to have your expertise, and thanks for providing us with an inside perspective of what's going on in this important local industry. Thanks for having me. It's remarked that entrepreneurship and community are the two places where regions' opportunities are most defined and progress is most often made. It's great when you have an opportunity to meet somebody who's actually crossing entrepreneurship and community building and making a big difference in our region. Thor Cheston is founder of Right Proper Brewing Company. Thor, thanks for joining us. So tell me a bit about Right Proper Brewing Company. Where is it located and what it's about? Well, Right Proper Brewing Company is a beer brand. We have two breweries in Washington, D.C., 
Um, we opened a brew pub, which is a brewery and restaurant combined in the Shaw neighborhood of Washington, D.C. It's it's right next to the historic Howard, the- Howard Theater. There we have a five-barrel brewing system, one barrel of beer in the brewing industry. At, that's uh, 31 U.S. gallons. We produce 1,000 barrels of beer a year, which is a good amount of beer, out of this tiny little brewery, and all of it is consumed on site. There, there's also a full-service restaurant, two big bars. Um we, since that brewery was, um, we can't really produce another drop of beer out of it, and it's all consumed on site. Um, when we thought about expansion and we wanted to distribute our beer to other bars and restaurants, we realized very quickly we had to open another brewery, a much larger brewery, which we did in 2015, just two years after we opened Shaw. And that is in the Brookland neighborhood of Washington, D.C. There, it's a much larger brewery, has an annual capacity of over 10,000 barrels of beer a year. And if you look at that space compared to the brew pub, the brew pub is 90% of the space is really dedicated to guest services. You know, large kitchen and dining room and two bars and a very small brewery. Now, you were born here. You are born in the region of McLean. Why did you and how did you choose to start the business that you did? Why did you start it? I have been in love with my hometown forever. Um, and one of the reasons why I love Washington, D.C. so much is kind of a group of individual neighborhoods. And each one of those neighborhoods, um, they all have their own identities. People are proud to say where they live. The D.C. residents, when you ask them where they live, they tell you the neighborhood. And they're developing very, very quickly. And there's, there's a lot of history behind those neighborhoods. I could see that the city was growing, and one of the ways that it was growing was it wasn't becoming uniform. Uh, the neighborhoods w- were really latching on to their own identities, and that neighborhood pride was being bolstered and fostered, and I, I loved it, and I wanted to be a part of it. When you look at this community and you start to think about the culture of it, like your experience it, I've had people say to me that not only is the culture and neighborhood not appreciated necessarily by our, our larger region, but a lot of the redevelopment activities that are going on are starting to squeeze people out of neighborhoods. You, you know, the affordable housing conversation, for example. What's your sense? You've planted your flag in two neighborhoods that have changed dramatically. And you're in an industry that brings people together from the neighborhood and also into the neighborhood. How well is it actually working as a mixing pot? Is, are, is the culture of neighborhoods surviving the changes that are happening the the culture is is evolving it is changing um people are being squeezed out um whether it's because of rising property taxes and there's a lot of pushback towards uh gentrification that's a it's a dirty word in a lot of neighborhoods and right proper brewing company and who we are as a company we are very much part of that gentrification and we're aware of that however when we go at representing our companies to the ANC meetings of the neighborhoods that we operate in. We are welcomed with nothing but open arms and a big warm hug almost from the community because of the efforts that we've made to be an amenity to the community. Um, when we opened the brew pub, all of our merchandise and you know glassware and t-shirts and things like that, it didn't say made in DC, right proper brewing company made in DC. It didn't say that. It said made in Shaw because we we brewed beer and we made food for the residents of the Shaw neighborhood. If other people wanted to come, great. But we're, we're, we are there for the Shaw neighborhood. Um, the rosette on the center of our logo, that's a nod towards the Shaw community as well. We, we are a D.C. business, but we didn't want uh, the Washington Monument on our on our logo. 
as you think about your journey as, as an entrepreneur, taking risks as you have, it strikes me that what you're doing is very authentic. It's genuine. It's not mass produced. I'm wondering, and I've wondered quite often recently, whether there's so much mass market in everything these days, mass market content for Pete's sakes, as well as food, that I, I'm getting more and more sense people are craving authenticity and reality and craft work. And that may be our best hope for having a vibrant society. You're in the middle of it. What do you think? You know, it's it's really interesting. Some of the greatest compliments that I've gotten are people that walk into our, our tasting room at our production house or our restaurant um, at our brew pub, and they just, they get the sense that, you know, the sense of authenticity. And it's, you know, I, I don't even know how to define authenticity. I think it's a kind of a catch-all word, but everything that we put in place is there for a reason. It's not there because we think we should. It's not there because we uh, we did market research. We didn't uh, do a poll of what people want. We built a restaurant that we wanted to go to. We brew beers that we want to drink. Our, our products aren't going to appeal to everyone, and they don't have to. Um, on the flip side of that, when we do something and the response is, this is amazing, oh, you know, we're, we're so thankful. We're so grateful. Thank you so much. We're so glad you like it because we love it. And I think that sense, that really, really sticking to your roots and sticking to your mission statement and always remembering why are we here you know, we're here to make something beautiful, to, to brew something beautiful, to, to make delicious food that's affordable um, and approachable, then everything else just seems to fall into place. Well, Thor, I very much enjoyed getting to know you today, and I look forward to coming down to Right Proper Brewing Company soon. Great story, and I really like it when I get to meet an entrepreneur who is walking the walk and making a difference. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. That was Thor Cheston, founder of Right Proper Brewing Company. An economist will tell you that the hallmark of a successful region for developing entrepreneurial companies is its density of resources, human resources, capital, real estate coming together to the conditions that will allow businesses to grow. The greater Washington region is a denser place to start a business than you might think. That is the message Kevin Bennett brings us as the co-founder of HomeZen, a homegrown startup, and he's now in his third startup growing in the D.C. region. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jonathan. Great to be here. Well, talk to me about the the issue of density through the prism of your new business, HomeZen. HomeZen, we help people sell their homes without a real estate agent and with a mix of software and services like you see in a lot of different industries these days. It is actually my co-founder and my uh, fourth startup together. We've worked at three other startups in D.C. together in the D.C. area. So we think of ourselves as having grown up through this ecosystem and being part of that next generation. And so a lot of our teammates, contractors, folks we work with, our advisors, our investors, are people we knew from the other startups and so, and folks that have been recommended to us from other startups. So when you talk about density, I think it's a great point. I think it really is about bringing together people and relationships and helping to build together because everyone in this ecosystem is here to build and and improve whatever aspect of the world they're working on. And so it really has been a wonderful place for us to start HomeZen and uh, to work and meet some great people. Well, when you talk about density and you talk about relationships, I find that particularly when you speak with people outside of the region, they look at you blankly 
when it is, you don't you find that when I go out to the Valley or some other part of the United States to say there's actually a huge entrepreneur community in D.C., people look at me with a sly eye, that like a sly eye. How do you overcome that, or how do you sell this region as a place for people to come? Because ultimately, if you're going to scale a business, you need talent. It's a great question, and one we get often. So we have, um, in full disclosure, raised a little bit of outside money from angels, mostly uh you know, the founding team of O-Power, where we worked, other angels and, and kind of family offices in the area. And we are starting to go out and look at, at uh, venture funding for the next round. And we've met with uh, firms in the Valley and in New York and in Boston and across the ecosystem in the U.S. And and once in a while, we'll get this question. Some folks get it and they they maybe made their first investment in O-Power or they made their first investment in another startup. And that worked out well. And so it feels less risky to them to invest in DC. But for some, they say, are you willing to move? Come out here, you know, you'll, you'll get more talent out here in, in the Valley or, or come move to Boston or come move to wherever. The explanation, which they all get and understand, but you have to make the case and tell the story is, this is our unfair advantage. Our unfair advantage is being in DC. It's having worked at three previous startups here. It's having inside track on great talent here. There, there's less competition, but also relationships that exist with us. You know, there's great talent, as you know. We, you know, there is great. There are great data scientists that work in the federal government and the private sector. There are great engineers that work in the startup ecosystem or defense contractors or at NASA or you know wherever it may be in the government. So there is talent here, and as the ecosystem. And startups in D.C. have become a, a sort of critical mass and early stage folks and, and people doing this and having fun doing it and their friends doing it. And they talk about it out socially. And other folks are saying, you know, I, I'd kind of like to do that. Maybe I could be an engineer for a startup, not an engineer for uh, someone in the government or defense contractor. Maybe I could do this and do data science. Maybe I could do marketing. Whatever it is I do, I can do with startups. And so you're seeing a talent pool almost start to materialize because it's starting to come from other areas of the local economy. And we're also attracting talent from outside. So I think you are seeing this start to change slowly. And, you know, we, we are based here because we actually think it's advantageous for us. I mean, I'm from the area and I've spent most of my life here, but uh, we're here because we think it's a great place to start a business and to be in the startup ecosystem. Because for our business, for HomeZen, you know, D.C. is a strong housing market. You know, we help people sell condos, townhouses, single family homes in D.C., Virginia, Maryland. You know, it's been a great place for us. And we're now have sold our first 20 plus homes. We're saving our customers an average of $20,000 a sale. And our business is thriving right here in the D.C. area. It's a classic entrepreneurial story when you talk about how you bring your resource together. But there's another thing here, which is you're using technology to blow up an existing way of doing businesses, drill down a little more. How's HomeZen using technology to actually help people sell properties in a way that's different from how it's being done now? Yeah, so we think technology, and we came at this from seeing what was happening in other industries and realizing you can apply the same technologies to real estate and provide a much more consumer-friendly value for the right consumer. Um, and we think it it makes a lot of sense. So everything from developing a pricing analysis, we work with a photography marketplace to have professional photographers take photos of the home. We 
get the home on the MLS through a partnership and syndicated to Realtor.com and all the other sites. And we've got contracts and disclosures, all with e-signature and done electronically. So none of the old faxing, scanning, printing, any of that. So it's more efficient. It's easier for our customers. And we drive great outcomes. Just last weekend, we had a home list on Friday, and it was uh, under contract by Sunday, above asking price, all cash offer. So it's not true that, you know, if you go a non-traditional route, that you won't be successful or you'll be less successful. We're seeing customers as successful or more successful, and they're saving the money. We actually had one customer of ours who saved $10,000 and is using it to travel around the world. And he's sending us photos and videos, and we have a blog post up about it, but, you know, from Paris and Dubai and Argentina and Patagonia. And he was able to sell his condo, and he put the money, you know, he's in his 30s, and said, I'm going to use it to travel around the world, and he's doing it. And there's nothing that makes us happier than seeing those photos and helping make that possible for him. It's really great. I never would have imagined an unintended positive consequence of when people sell a home was you got postcard photographs. That's really cool. <laughs> it's been great. It's been great. So, Kevin, you, you've been through this drill four times, I've, I've learned now, not three as I had thought. bit of quick advice for listeners who are thinking about starting their entrepreneurial journey here in D.C. Where would you send them to get into this ecosystem? It's a great question. There are great meetups, I think. Be, there's no substitute for being here like anywhere else. And I think one of the great things about this ecosystem is it is such a wonderful group of people and they're friendly and they're collegial and they want to help. No one does it on their own. We've had a tremendous amount of help and I think everyone would tell you the same thing, every founder, any early stage company. And so I think people are always willing to help and I often will get emails from people in the ecosystem say, I have a friend who's thinking about this. I have someone who's thinking about this. Would you mind talking to them? Would you mind giving them advice? Whether and, and I always am willing to do it because people did it for me. It is an ecosystem that's emerging, and it's still a scrappy one. And I think everyone, as you know, appreciates what you're doing to build the ecosystem with this radio program, what you've done, uh, obviously, on the investment side. We're all trying to do whatever we can to build the ecosystem, make it stronger. So I think we're, we're a very welcoming group as well. That's another example of why density matters. The more that we bring people together, entrepreneurs make things happen. Kevin Bennett, we really appreciate your time today. We look forward to hearing great things about homes in the future. Had a great time. Thank you. And that's our show for this week. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan. Our online contributors are Michael Hoffman, Barbara Ulrich, and Candace Pye. Music provided by two D.C. region bands, Two Car Living Room and The Sunbathers. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and please rate the podcast. This helps us to spread the word about the interesting stories we're telling on what's working in Washington. And let us know what you think we should be talking about on the show. Tweet us at What's Working DC. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington, the power to get things done. Download this show or any of our weekly programs at federalnewsradio.com. What's Working in Washington, Monday afternoons at 2.30 on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m.